The sermon text is Psalm 16. Psalm 16 and the the very psalm that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the lands, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lots. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hands. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we seek security uh, for so much of our life. We, we spend seeking security politically, financially, medically. We are those who are created for God, created to find our refuge in Him. And because of the entrance of sin into this life, life has become shot through with sin, shot through with war and disease and death. And we, made for God, yet rejecting Him by nature, have this God-shaped vacuum in our souls that only He can fill. Our security is found in Him. And that's David's confession that he makes. That's the, the, the entrance into this psalm, into Psalm 16. This very simple psalm, it's one of my favorites. It's a simple gospel Finding our refuge in God, and regardless of what age we are, whether we're healthy or we're sick, whether we're young or old, whatever uh, our station in life, this is good news for us, this refuge, this security that we find in God. And that's the simple theme for this psalm this afternoon, that the believer finds everlasting refuge in God. In verses 2 to 4, we see the commitments, the commitment that we make. Then secondly, the, cont- the contentments that we express, verses 5 through 8, contentment in the things that God has, has blessed us with, the things around us and the people he has placed in our lives. And then finally, the confidence that we possess, the commitments we make, the contentments we express in the confidence that we possess. 
David begins where we must all begin. He has placed his refuge in the Lord. He is in some kind of danger, although it doesn't seem that with, with the, the, the sort of rest and calmness of the psalm, it doesn't seem like that danger is, is all that close or the, all that near to him, but he understands, he recognizes his weakness and his helplessness. He recognizes uh, his need for God's preserving hand in his life. So he begins, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then the rest of the psalm spills out of that. And the commitments that he makes, the commitments that we then make, is found in verses 2 to 4. It begins with, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And, and this is a reminder that when we read the psalms, and one of the primary reasons that we prioritize them in our worship when we sing is that when we read the Psalms, we're not only being instructed. God is not only speaking to us, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through us, giving us the words that we need so desperately, uh, that, that, that we need to express our faith to God. To find the words when we are sad to cry out to him with laments. When we are happy and full of praise and thanksgiving to find the words to express that. And when we see our weakness to find the words to speak to God of our refuge. To remember again who he is for us and what we have in him. And that's what David's doing. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. It's the commitment he makes, it's the commitments we are called to make. Because we don't always feel like this when we are in danger. In the past two years, I haven't always felt this way. I've wondered where is our nation heading? Where are our religious freedoms going to be in, in the years to come? Where, where will my, what kind of country will my children live in? And then I need to be reminded, I need to say again what is true. That's like Psalm 37. Fret not when evildoers seem to have the upper hand. Remember, don't forget that God is still the ruler yet. And so with this psalm, when you are in trouble, when you feel insecure, when you are feeling the, your helplessness and the dangers around you, Hope in the Lord. Set your refuge in him. And even when life is really good, and you are tempted to think that our refuge is here in the things of earth, because, boy, we can feel that way too. This psalm instructs us, gives us words to say what we know to be true. I have no good apart from you. If I don't, do not have God I ultimately have nothing lasting. I have nothing that can truly be a refuge. There's nothing in this life in terms of the things of earth that we find refuge in, whether it's a house or a bank account or um, a mutual fund, whatever it is, an insurance package, nothing that we can find refuge in in this life, that can be a refuge for us in death. Death devours, conquers everything. So certainly when it comes to the fact that we will all die, 100% of us will die, we need to be reminded again, I have no good apart from you, God. And in fact, as we 
as we know, as the creator of the heavens and the earth, every good thing we possess in this life, and we'll consider that in the, more in the second point, is ultimately from him. The goodness we know in our daily lives is a reflection, a taste of his ultimate goodness. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And that's where we begin. We put our heart there. It's like when we come to worship, we don't necessarily always feel like worshiping and praising and giving thanks. But we do it, not because we're faking it, but because we know this is true. I have no good apart from you, O oh God. And that follows up. That's the sort of the, the other side of this coin is, when we have no good apart from God, then we look to our brothers and sisters and acknowledge also our love for them. Verse 3, as for the saints in the lands, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So our commitment to the Lord leads naturally to our commitment to his people. In the first epistle of John, the apostle says that if you truly love God, if you have genuine love for God, that must be accompanied by love for your brothers and sisters. If you do not love your brother or sister, he says, you cannot. You do not have the love of God in you. Those two are so intimately connected, so necessarily connected. Now we can see that connection taking place here. I have no good apart from God. Then guess what? His people my people, his people are, the, are my excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And one thing, again, I, I know we all get tired about talking about COVID-19, but if you look over the past two years, this has been tested. This has been a test for the church of Jesus Christ. It's been a test for me and probably for you. Amidst all the different opinions, when we hold them, and we may hold them strongly, but regardless of where we stand, can we say, have we been able to say, this does not define our unity. What defines our unity is what we have in Jesus Christ. We go underneath those things, and there we find who we are in Jesus Christ together, there is our love based. There is our unity. And the, the Bible is very realistic about the fact that this doesn't come naturally. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, what brings us together is not common interests. You know, when people go to a hockey game, they're all there because they love hockey. And that's where they find their unity in that common interest. We find our unity in Christ. But as we do so, we, we are people with all kinds of different personalities and interests. And we rub each other the wrong way at times. And we're weird. We're a motley crew. All of us are, in some sense of the word, we're, we're strange. And so to find unity, to love one another as God calls us to, well, the Bible is very realistic about it. Be patient. You have to bear with. It's going to take work. Forgive. Forgive as Christ forgave you and, and so forth. And remember that in the new creation, as you look around today, these are the people you will be living with forever. And so we find God is our, we have no good apart from God. And as we find our goodness in him, so we delight in his people and in delighting in, in his people, we also say no then 
No then to finding that kind of spiritual fellowship with the world. Of course, we must love our neighbor and be friendly to our neighbor and be in our communities. I, I think it's neat that you're, you're worshiping here in this building in, in the middle of this community now. That's a good thing. But we don't find spiritual fellowship with the world. And so we confess with this psalm, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. All of those political idols, those financial idols, whatever idol it is, they can't save us. And the sins that we are attracted to, those, those temptations that, that draw, seek to draw us away, right? The devil gives all those glittering promises, but we know that in the end, anger and wrath and gossip and lust and whatever sin it is that we struggle with, they are not very forgiving. They only seek to consume us until there is nothing truly left of us. And so we begin there, our commitment. The Holy Spirit giving us these words to express the commitment we make. Secondly, the contentment we express. If looking up, we find in God our refuge, then looking around, we can learn to enjoy the gifts that he's given. If life is always up ahead, and if we are not content in God, we will never truly enjoy the things of this life. They will become something that possesses us or things that uh, we can't truly Seize, you know, we, we can't truly seize the day then and live this day fully for the Lord. So here's this contentment we express. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, right? God is my supreme good. You hold my lots. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So here's this gift of contentment, looking around saying the people God has given to me, the stuff, the possessions that he has blessed me with. This is a beautiful inheritance. The, the language of the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, I, this, this evokes imagery of coming into the promised land and, and each tribe, each clan is waiting for, for God to apportion out the, the land allotted to them. That's our station in life. We say, God, thank you. You've given me a, a beautiful inheritance. And it's a choice that we make. When we speak this psalm, when we pray it to God, we are making a choice. God, you are truly good to me. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. Verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever state to be content. And how do we learn that? Well, it begins by making a choice. My wife and I have learned this nice phrase from Rosaria Butterfield. You may know her from books like The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert or The Gospel Comes with a House Key. But she writes, lower your expectations and choose joy. Lower your expectations and choose joy. And we like to do that. At, we like to use that phrase at Christmas time when our kids are opening up their presents. 
lower your expectations, and choose joy. If you think that whatever you're going to get today is going to make you happy, your expectations are going to be will completely emptied. You're not going to find what you're looking for. But if you lower your expectations in terms of what you expect, the happiness you expect to get from this thing, and you just enjoy this thing for what it is and, and who it came from, and you choose joy, you will enjoy the gift. And so it is with our God and the blessings he has given to us. If life is always up ahead, we come to the end of it and we found we've never enjoyed any of it. But when we say here, now, this day, the people I'm going to meet, every moment that I'm going to spend, I now have this choice. I can seize this. And God can, can write the story of my life in such a way that I am living for him and enjoying the people around me and, and embracing every conversation that I have with them. Or I can miss it all because I've been waiting for it to happen. What I think will really make me happy to happen. But not only does David give thanks for God's goodness in the, in the provisions of this life, he also gives thanks for God's counsel. Verse 7 and 8, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Where does that counsel come? The Bible. And then he says, in, and in the night also my heart instructs me. And the word there has to do with ruminating, chewing on it. What is this? Except externally God gives us his word, his counsel. And internally by the power of the spirit, we meditate upon that. We internalize that. David is saying, this is one of my greatest blessings, God, is your counsel. Now think of this. We probably have how many Bibles scattered around our houses in the English language, all kinds of different versions. Well, recently I read a biography of William Tyndale, and he literally, he literally gave his life to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek for the first time into the English language. It was his life's work, and he was burnt at the stake for it. But he even told the king at one point, does it matter? Take my life. Just don't destroy the Bible. Let it go. Set it free to, to go across this nation I'm expendable, the word of God is not. And when he was languishing in prison waiting to be executed, it was cold, it was wintertime, he was in Belgium at this point, and he writes this really sweet letter to one of his friends and he asks for a few things like a, a cap because he's cold and maybe some warm socks. But then he says, and can you get my Hebrew Bible for me, please? Can you get my Hebrew Bible and my, my pen and my ink so I can study. It's, it was his 
one of his deepest desires, that while he was languishing in this cold, dank, dark cell, that he could at least have his Bible with him. And it's humbling for me to see a man who literally gave his life so that we could have an English Bible. Do we, do we treasure that? Do we understand that when God speaks to us in his word, this is the voice of the shepherd. He's talking to me. He's counseling me. And then I'm talking back as I, as I meditate on it, as I sing it, as I pray it. Is there any greater blessing than to have God's counsel in our life? And as he is our counselor, so we say in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. I put his word in front of me. I put him at my right hand, and therefore I shall not be shaken. It's like being on a highway in the middle of a, of a snowstorm, and you can, can hardly see the road, certainly can't see the lines, not sure if you're going to go off the road or into, the, into oncoming traffic. And then suddenly you see in front of you the taillights of a tractor trailer. And you can tuck in behind him and go the rest of the way following his lights. Well, there's that sense of this, if I've set the Lord always before me. Now I'm safe. Here's some refuge. Here's, here's a light to follow, a light to, to lead me and guide me to where I need to go. So the commitment we make, the contentment we express, finally, the confidence we possess. Verses 9 through 11. And this is the portion particularly that Peter quotes in Acts 2. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So this is not just a spiritual delight. It says my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And soul here, we shouldn't interpret as merely the, the inside of us. But soul in, in, in Hebrew often refers to the whole body, or to the whole person, body and soul. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. So he says, first of all, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. He feels that, that, that threat, that threat of bodily harm. It's one of the reasons why he's reached out to, to God for refuge. So the, the security of living with God applies and is felt right down to his DNA. God's grace, after all, is for our bodies, not only for our souls, not only for the inner man. The idea that salvation is only for our souls and that, and that it is, salvation is out of this world, ascending out of our bodies and its, and its limitations and into some ethereal, spiritual, disembodied realm that is pagan. It is not Christian. It is not biblical. The worldview of, of salvation that we that we know from the Bible is that in the end, when Christ returns and he makes all things new, heaven comes down to earth. And we live in a new creation. 
And our imaginations at that point can run wild because it is, it is this creation, but without the sin, this creation made new, these bodies but glorified. This is good news because we know that when it comes to standing at the graveside and we see that body in a casket lowered in and the dirt is dumped on, it is a finality to this. It's a comfort to know that our loved ones are with the Lord now, out of the body. But it's such a comfort to know that one day Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a harvest from that graveyard. And all those bodies will rise. Even the bodies of of the children we've lost through miscarriages, they too will rise and be with us there in the new creation. So here's David, he has all this reason to be happy, but how can he know any of this? How can he be certain of this? Well, look what he says. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You won't abandon me, you won't leave me in the grave, you won't let my body rot, corruption, decay. Now fast forward a thousand years later and Peter is standing there at Pentecost and he's preaching to the crowds and he quotes Psalm 16 and he says, if this was just about David, he's, he's a liar because I'm standing here preaching to you and David's buried underneath my feet and his body has sat there for a thousand years and it is dust. He was abandoned to the grave And he did see corruption. Because David's not talking just about himself. He's talking about himself, but he can only say this about himself because he's ultimately talking about someone else. That's what what Peter preaches. That David was a prophet. God gave him. God gave him this assurance that there would be a one, a holy one, his servant, the Messiah, who would not be abandoned in the grave, who three days after he was crucified, dead, and buried, he would rise again. And therefore my flesh rests secure. Therefore I can know that when death comes, this is not the end. What David is saying is that if God is our portion and delight here, he will be our refuge now and into eternity. But if he's not, if he doesn't mean much to us or anything, and if we are living for this world and we find our refuge here and we are molly coddling our sins and protecting them and we might look good on the outside and we may be going through the motions, but we don't really rest in this Savior, then what does it mean? It means he won't be our refuge when death comes. He will not be our refuge into eternity. And we will suffer the hell of fire for eternity. But no, those who trust in the Lord, what can they say? Because my Savior was not abandoned to the grave and I belong to him, I will not be abandoned to the grave. I will dwell in the new creation with him forever in a world made new And what is that like? Well, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
He's talking about heaven because he's speaking forevermore. Begins now, right? When, when we are filled with joy in God's presence now, when we set him apart, when we set him before us and at our right hand and we choose him as our greatest joy, so he will be. But David is talking about something far beyond that. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know how to take these words and make them any better than they are. Except to say this. It's an illustration from our supper table at home probably about, what, six years ago. My oldest daughter, as we were talking about heaven, she said, I don't really want to go to heaven. Dad? I said, well, I think I understand, but tell me, why not? Well, because I like it here. I like to be, and this is what she said, I like to be home. And I said, well, that's wonderful that you like to be home, or I'm thankful for that, yet that, that you, you feel safe here and you feel there is refuge here. But think of it this way. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy. David is saying, the Bible is saying, home is really, truly to be with God in the new creation forever. So what I told her was, think of it this way, the, the reason you like to be home now is because God is giving you a little taste here in this home of what it's like to be home with him forever in the new creation. So what gives you joy now here? That will just be so much greater when you get there. Eternal or pleasures at your right hand forevermore. You'd think of that one of those moments in life when you said, I wish I could just camp out here, right here. This is good. That is not, not a cheap thrill, but a real joy. Maybe it's around a Thanksgiving table and your family's all together and everyone's getting along and, and there's, there's, there's this sense of this is good. This is so happy. Now you take whatever moment that is, take that and multiply that exponentially. And not in a way that ever, that has any limits. When we get to heaven, beyond that, when we get to the, the final state, the, the new creation, it's not like we just have more time to fill. It's not just more time to fill, it is more life to live and, there's, and we just keep on going deeper into that. And that joy grows and the joy never ends. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So make the Lord Jesus Christ your refuge. Make that commitment. And your heart will follow. Choose joy in what he's given you here and now. And do so in the hope of and in the expectation of the eternal pleasures that we will know with him in the new creation together. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 36.